Welcome to The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Friday, April the 14th, 2023. On this edition of The Politocrat, the notion and the myth of bad apples in police departments across the United States. This isn't about bad apples. It's about a system. Plus, do more police officers reduce crime? I'm going to be exploring that and trying to answer that question coming up next. Dear listener, happy Friday to you on this edition of the Politocrat Daily Podcast. Hope you're well on this Friday, wherever you may be. Hope you are happier and healthier. And if you're not, I do hope the the fortunes change for you to be uh, aligned in your favor and that there is a modicum of happiness that you can report uh, at some point soon. I hope things get better for you, dear listener. I know that it's, it's a tough life, isn't it? This life that we live in and every day has challenges, adventures, ups, downs. Do the very best you can. You know, there's a lot of adversity, a lot of stress, a lot of strain, a lot of things coming at you. And I promise you um, that tough times do not last, but, but tough people do. So, dear listener, I do welcome you. Uh, Omar Moore here on this edition of the Political Daily Podcast. Wonderful to have you aboard. And uh, thank you for spreading the message to your friends and your family about this podcast. Please continue to do so. And uh, also talk about the Politocrat Daily Podcast online store, won't you please? You can go to the-politocrat.myshopify.com and buy merchandise designed by yours truly. I've got more on the way as summer beckons, dear listener. Thank you, thank you, and uh, thank you. And here we are on this Friday. By the way, tax deadline day for those of you inside the United States who may be listening to yours truly at this moment. The deadline for taxes here in 2023, the deadline to file your taxes to the IRS, would be April the 18th. That is Tuesday coming up. So please, dear listener, you've only got a few more days to go. Do not procrastinate and do not wait. Do not delay. Please file your taxes today. So, dear listener, I'm going to get into policing and the issue of policing in the United States. You know, I'm not going to talk about defund the police because that phrase is, you know, one that's so co-opted, misused, um, not accurate necessarily, is not contextualized. I'm not going to get into that here today. But what I'm going to do is talk about this notion, this myth of the bad apple and the bad apples in police departments. And I just think that really does the whole notion of, you know, this myth of the bad apple really does not paint the true picture of what is actually something much deeper. So I'll get into that. I'll also get into the question of whether or not having more police on the streets means less crime, because I want to also shatter that veneer as well. That's coming up in a, in a few minutes, but what I want to start with is the opening word. Now, from time to time, dear listener, what I do on this podcast is something is a new feature uh, here. I've not really emphasized it too much. The opening word, where I will talk about a story or stories or just riff or just rant or whatever it is I do on this podcast <laughs> and just get your uh, juices flowing, if you will, 
as to the state of affairs uh, with, with some of the things that, that I ruminate about, uh, things that you may not be aware of, or whatever it might be here on the Politocrat Daily Podcast to get you started. Um, on this episode, I'm going to play you audio from a story that you may not be aware of. I've actually posted this story on the social media channels, a few of them that I can be found on, and uh, you can get more information there. But what I'm going to play you is the audio, which is almost three minutes long, of a story from Horsham, Pennsylvania, here in the United States. H-O-R-S-H-A-M, Horsham, Pennsylvania. Now, I do want to give you a warning that some of the content you may hear may be distressing. You may find this to be distressing. Okay, so I just want to give you that advisory. There's nothing necessarily graphic, but it is disturbing and distressing. I think it is mildly so, or maybe even deeper than that. So, dear listener, I do want to play this for you right now. Here is a report that I would uh, really advise you to listen to here. This is a report um, from a TV station in Pennsylvania. And so here we are right now with this report. Again, um, I do want you to pay close attention to this. And as of right now, I am going to play it to you. Here is the report right now from a local news station in Pennsylvania. Start with a crime that has shocked a community in Montgomery County. Tonight, a mother stands accused of strangling her 11-year-old son. The charges were announced today, one day after the boy was found dead at home and the mother was found at the Jersey Shore. And his reporter, Rob Mansch, is outside the family's home now in Horsham Township. Rob, the DA, believes no one else was involved. Yeah, that's right, Rob. So according to District Attorney Kevin Steele, while a crime like this might be hard to understand, it's actually, in his words, going to be pretty, quote, straightforward to prosecute. That's because yesterday in an interview with police in New Jersey, Ruth Dirienza Whitehead actually admitted to killing her own 11-year-old son at the family home here on Privet Road. Outside the Montgomery County Courthouse, District Attorney Kevin Steele said there's no doubt in his mind 50-year-old Ruth Dirienzo Whitehead is responsible for killing her 11-year-old son Matthew in cold blood. Autopsy was this morning uh, where the, the cause of death was found to be strangulation, and strangulation takes time. Um, so this is a brutal murder. Of a, of a little boy. Derienza Whitehead was a realtor with Keller Williams, but in an interview with detectives, she said her son had been concerned about the family's financial issues. She said she didn't want him growing up dealing with that, so she killed him. Steele says it's hard for anyone to wrap their mind around. I had a 12-year-old. To, to think that someone is capable of taking a belt to their child's neck and strangling them um, is, um, it makes you sick. Matthew Whitehead was found by his father Tuesday morning, who called 911. By that time, Dirienza Whitehead was long gone. She drove her Toyota Highlander to Cape May, New Jersey, where she ditched it in the ocean. Inside, investigators found a belt believed to be the murder weapon. Police finally caught up with her in Wildwood Crest. Back in Pennsylvania, neighbors are dumbfounded. You love your grandchildren so much. 
and your children. It's beyond comprehension. I feel bad for her husband, who now lost his own child. I feel bad for the schoolmates. And right now, Dirienza Whitehead is being held in New Jersey while she awaits extradition back here to Pennsylvania. When she gets here to Montgomery County, she will be held without bond. We're live in Horsham Township tonight. Rob Manch, 69 News. Take a moment there to let that sink in. That was from WFMZ. That's uh, Winston Franklin Maria Zebra. WFMZ television. That's a local uh, news station there in, I think, southeastern Pennsylvania. You're aware of it. That station operates out of here uh, in the United States. And you heard that. That is disturbing. Now, a mother killing her own child, admitting to doing so, first degree murder charge. I mean, it's just, it's just disturbing. It's horrible. And this was, this is a white female who did this to her child. And I, 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 I say it's horrible for, obviously, I agree with the comment that was made there by one of the people being interviewed that you just heard, that it is, uh, you know, you feel for the husband because, you know, his only child, apparently it's their only child, um, is dead. And that's the horror. And of course, the child being dead is the horror. And for me, there is in this report, I'm going to just come out and say this. It's the way that the report is rendered. The very first voice you hear in the report, oh, here's a crime that shocked a community. As As if somehow crimes don't happen in these white suburban communities. And, and they do all the time. It's this dirty little secret that we're told about white suburban America, that somehow there isn't crime going on in behind closed doors, that there's not domestic violence. The, the rates of domestic violence amongst white people is quite high. And there's a higher uh, incidence proportionally in, in many instances for uh, black women who, who suffer uh, domestic violence, by the way, disproportionately to anyone else, disproportionately more often than anyone else. Uh, I should point that out as well, dear listener. Um, I am, I'm simply saying here uh, that whenever... I know someone's going to say, but you're racializing this. You're racializing. Actually, no, I'm actually putting perspective on things. Not even a euphemism for for that. I'm simply saying, dear listener, that this is a horrible story. I don't care who it happens to. But, but, and I, you know, I use the, the, I should say, and, and, right? I want to use the conjunctive here. And, not the disjunctive, or the or would be the disjunctive, but and, When this story is about someone black allegedly doing this, and by the way, again, this this particular woman, this white woman has admitted to doing it, according to the report you heard, confessed, you know. But when a black person or if a black person is accused of this, there isn't a crime. I guarantee you the news report wouldn't be, oh, there's news of a crime that shocked a community. It would just be reported as... This person did this, this, and this. I've seen this before because there was a story where a black man who was the boyfriend of a black woman 
who was a mother had been accused of or had allegedly killed the son. Uh, and I remember that this is a story that got a lot of attention. And they never said, this crime shocked the community. They just said, black man has been arrested. You know, they didn't use the word black man. And they didn't use the word N either. They didn't say that either. I'm just saying, da- you know, I'm just making up a name now. David, uh, David Livingstone was uh, charged with uh, uh, battery and uh, second degree murder. And, and they wouldn't say shocking crime in the community. They would say, well, that Negro has been charged. And that would be the end of that. And there wouldn't be people being interviewed. Oh, I feel sorry for this one. I feel sorry for that one. They would probably be, if anyone were interviewed at all, dear listener, it would just be, how can someone do something so horrible? How can, you know, it would be all about outrage. I'm saying this, dear listener, because the way that crime is covered by the news media, whether it be the local news media or the corporate news media at large on the national scale, the way that that is covered when a black person is accused of a crime or had committed the crime and a white person is accused or had committed the crime is very different, very different. So I I just want to say that because there was a lot of empathy and, you know, there was not necessarily with the white woman who committed this crime because she's admitted to it. Now, of course, we have to go through the due process because she's entitled to due process, dear listener. I'm a fan of due process. I don't care who it is. Even people I don't like, like the piece of garbage who's been indicted now and arrested and all the rest and and did a seven hour plus deposition uh, yesterday in New York City. That got far less uh, news coverage, live news coverage, by the way. Of course, that's a deposition is different and you don't have cameras in there, at least for the public. Uh, But the bottom line, dear listener, is, you know, it's just this whole level of not empathy with the woman per, per se, but you know, there's more of a human face that's being put on a story that's so monstrous and barbaric and evil than if, say, when it's a white person accused than when a black person is accused. Because it's when a black person's accused, it's, well, yes, this is what we expected from those Negroes. So we're going to uh, um, just report this as a story that you would understand would happen in their community. And that's how it, that is the underlying subliminal that comes from these, these reports. You heard in the report I just played for you, dear listener, the white male district attorney talking about, you know, I have a son, he's 12. And you could hear him tearing up. You could hear him um, about to cry. You can't hear someone tear up. You can hear, obviously, when someone is crying or about to. And it sounded like he, which you could hear his, his voice breaking and rising with this, you know, emotional intensity. So there is humanity projected in. That's what I'm trying to say, dear listener, as I fear that I might ramble here. But that's the thing, and I'm not trying to minimize the horror of this story at all. I am just simply reminding you how we are socialized in this country and others to have very different responses when someone white is committing crime as opposed to when someone black is committing crime. 
and the corporate news media, the local news media, or whomever it might be, who is in the business of reporting news, do this deliberately. It's the socializing and the conditioning process in a anti-black, systemically racist society called the United States of America. This is how you are socialized, dear listener, whether you are black, whether you are Asian, whether you're brown, whether you're white, whether you are native. This is how you're socialized. And how you counteract that kind of socialization is the key here, right? Because these messages, and I spoke with the uh, esteemed professor, Caritha Mitchell, about this, and she actually made these points, actually, um, a few weeks ago here on the Politocrat Daily Podcast. I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to that conversation that, that she and I had. And you get bombarded with these messages, and as a human being, it's impossible at some point not to internalize them. It's impossible not to. You're going to internalize some of this. And how you respond to that internalization is a very big part of this. So I wanted to just identify that, put it out there, dear listener, for the first, what, 10, 11 minutes or so of the opening word. And that's what this has been, the opening word. And by the way, what I've said here is actually connected to the main topic. And I'll talk about the main topic right after this. Dear listener, welcome back. And before I continue and talk about the main topics of discussion here for this episode of the Politocrat Daily Podcast, and thank you very much for joining me here, I do want to briefly talk about the news yesterday um, with the arrest of someone here in Northern California in Emeryville, which is uh, part of the Bay Area in Northern California, um, of someone who allegedly, allegedly killed the Cash App founder, Bob Lee. Now, that's a story that has made a lot of headlines across the United States and maybe even beyond um, over the last few days. Last week, Bob Lee, who uh, is a white male executive who founded Cash App, which is a very popular um, payment uh, app, very popular, millions of people use it, and and, and he does and he was a, the found, he was the CEO of a, a number of com- one or two companies if I remember correctly he was killed here in San Francisco California last week in fact there's some really disturbing video that's been making the rounds on TV news locally and beyond and maybe on the internets I'm sure it's probably there as well on social media and et al um, et cetera et cetera et cetera um, horrible stuff I mean I. I, I saw just a fraction of it and I just switched switched the blooming thing off. I don't need to see someone being stabbed or being killed or sta- uh, staggering. Uh, it, it's just horrible stuff. So, and think of the family of the person who, you know, having to see that or having to know that that's been thrown, you know. Anyway, so the bottom line is, is that over the last few days before the arrest that that occurred yesterday, there were a load of people on social media, you can guess which platform it was, who were so-called venture capitalists, people who are, you know, uh, very moneyed, uh, usually white males, 
pontificating and speculating, including the owner of the uh, said platform that I did not say, um, talking about, well, you know, try, you know, speculating on who it was that committed this crime. And as everyone does, whether they admit it or not, people do go to a certain place and have an assumption about who commits crime or who committed a crime. You know, again, I said to you, dear listener, that the first segment, the opening word that I did on the killing, a mother killing her own son was connected to what I'm going to get to. And again, I, there is a method to what I do here. You know, I don't do these things willy-nilly and not, even though this is an unscripted podcast, dear listener, I do not do these things by accident. There is, a, a, forgive me, a method to the so-called madness. But what I do want to say is that we, all of us, again, we socialize to have these kinds of uh, impulse reactions, boop, these blips. And Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book about this called Blink. You know, how we think about things before we even think about them. We respond to things before we even respond to them. And it's basically one of the three. It's a very informal gloss over what he talked about in that book called Blink. You should read that book, Malcolm Gladwell. Now, look, bottom line here is that we all have a, in our mind, a picture and we're socialized to about, well, who might have committed this crime? We're usually thinking of a male and we're usually thinking of someone well, it could be anyone, but I dare say many people think about, well, that person's black or brown, aren't they, who committed that crime? Ooh, that person's homeless. And that's the thing, right, that people think. And you have these so-called venture capitalists and these tech bros talking on Twitter. Oh, I mentioned the platform because I'm on the platform, too, you know, and maybe you are, too. And so they're all talking. Yeah, it was some so-called, uh, you know, homeless person. Or I bet you it wasn't someone from Pacific Heights, which is a affluent neighborhood here in San Francisco. And, you know, it seems relatively safe in Pacific Whites. That's the nickname given to um, Pacific Heights, right? Because it is a largely white, old-moneyed community. And I walk through it all the time. I mean, it's right right around the corner. And so I walk through Pacific Heights quite frequently. And it is Pacific white. It is very white. San Francisco is very white. There's le- Again, I want to remind you that San Francisco is less than 5% black. I kid you not. Now, it never used to be like that. If you go back to the 1940s and 50s, the population was quite a bit higher. And then the exodus, the forced exodus, the forced exodus, if I can say it properly, of black people in San Francisco began in the 1950s, certainly the late 1950s. And it's particularly in the Fillmore District, which was the preeminent black neighborhood here in San Francisco. Now the Fillmore District is highly unrecognizable for the most part. And now where the bulk of black people are centered and focused are in the Hunter's Point and Bayview communities. But look, that's just the background here. There's neither here nor there. Um, the reason I point that out is because I talked about Pacific Heights and, you know, I mentioned these tech bros talking about, oh, Pacific Whites, oh, it's relatively safe, it's safe up there, oh, it's safe, ooh. And the, the ignorance, because, dear listener, there's crime in Pacific Heights all the time. You don't necessarily hear about it, you know, every day on your local news here in San Francisco, but there is crime there. 
there have been a number of break-ins, there have been a number of all kinds of things. And one of the most high-profile crimes to these stupid tech bros who were talking garbage was the hammer attack on Speaker Pelosi, then Speaker Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi. Did everybody forget that? Did these tech bros, did they all of a sudden freaking forget that Pacific Heights saw one of the most disgusting crimes within the last six months? Did they forget? I guess they did. Well, I'm here to remind them, and I did remind them on that, that said platform aforementioned, that there is crime in Pacific Heights, including crime committed by white males. Because actually, if you look at San Francisco, that's who's committing most of the crime. It's not homeless people. In fact, homeless people commit less than 5% of the violent crime in San Francisco. And in general in the United States, this notion that homeless people commit this, it's just, again, it's the boogeyman that people like to use. Perhaps you do as well. Boogeyman, ooh, it's this homeless person. (sighs) Not only was the person arrested yesterday in Emeryville, here in Northern California, across the Bay Bridge, not homeless. The person was a tech person. You could say a tech bro. I'm not going to mention his name. I don't want to mention his name. And, you know, whether he's, he might be Persian, I don't know what his background is, right? The bottom line is, is that this person who allegedly stabbed Bob Lee was someone who was not poor, was not unhoused or homeless. He was fairly well-to-do, mate. He's making a lot of money. And he knew Bob Lee. That's another thing. Oh, well, you know, um, mm, well, this is a stranger who must have done it. And you know what? And Bill Lee, excuse me, Bill Scott, Bill Scott, the San Francisco Police Department police chief, said this at the press conference. I was going to play this, but I'm not going to now. Um, press conference yesterday that a lot of these violent crimes, m- most of them, research shows, are committed by people who know each other. So violent crime committed upon a person is most often committed by someone who knows someone. Same thing when, and rape is a violent crime. So same thing there. The vast majority of rapes in any city, in any country, in any state, in any town, are committed by someone who knows the survivor. It's not this person that lurks in the bush, some complete stranger with a mask on or a balaclava on, you know, clad in camouflage or all black or whatever. It's that that's the societal myth again, and going back to how we're indoctrinated, how we're brought up and socialized to believe that it's some ooh mysterious person, right? And usually, again, because the society is so racist and it's so anti-black racist, many of us, whoever us is or are, think, oh, black man in the bushes. 
And I, I begin to think, do people do this because they fantasize about this sick bullcrap? Because I think these tech bros, they were secretly hoping that someone homeless or unhoused committed this crime against Bob Lee. And I think these people are that sick. I think they're actually disappointed that it was someone in the tech community who freaking knew Bob Lee, who's been arrested for this crime, this murder, this killing. You know, I think people are that sick and perverted. And again, I want to say this again because I said it yesterday, if I remember correctly. This rush to recall the San Francisco district attorney at the time, Chesa Boudin, last year. And I was telling you this was going to backfire. And I voted to keep Chesa Boudin. Full disclosure, I met him, had a picture taken with him in 2021. I told you. I told you. Or 2019, I had the photo taken with him. Whenever it was, it was 2019. That's when he was elected. I told you, dear listener, that this was not going to be a good idea to get rid of this DA to recall him. You know, this right wing and these these venture capitalists and these tech bros, oh, recall him, recall him. And they recalled him and the crime rate was actually going down in San Francisco. And by the way, the crime rate now is leveled off. It's basically the same, if not slightly lower it's not, there's no, not much difference. Again, everything I talk about is connected in this episode and in all the episodes I do of this podcast. And I am getting a bit long-winded here, so I'm going to try to wrap this up and, and get to the main event. But the, the bottom line, dear listener, is, is that recalling a district attorney and bringing in a new one, Brooke Jenkins, who I do not like. Nothing to do with Brooke Jenkins being female. She's a black woman. I, I, I'm not against her in any way, personally. I just do not like the manner in which she was brought in, the ties and news stories that suggest that she kind of is a bit shady. Now, again, I don't want to harp on what the corporate news media says or the local news media, because I don't trust the corporate news media anyway. I really don't, as you know by now. I am very skeptical, and I read and listen with a third ear, as Joe Madison would say, third eye and a third ear as Joe Madison, the Black Eagle on Sirius XM Channel 126 would say, um, every day from Monday through Friday from 6 a.m. Eastern to 10 a.m. Eastern time. So look, the bottom line is that I'm not a big fan of Brooke Jenkins. I was a fan of Chesa Boudin. He was, as a progressive prosecutor, trying to do things differently. Many people were complaining about the fact that there were a lot of quality of life crimes that were not being prosecuted. That was one of the strategies of Mr. Chesa Boudin, um, all the rest of it. He was not liked by the capitalists, the venture capitalist crowd, and they spent billions or millions of dollars trying to unseat him and remove him from office. And the mayor didn't like him. The black mayor, black female mayor, London Bree, didn't like him either. And uh, he narrowly beat her appointed pick because she put some, I forget her name now, Liz or whomever it was, da-da-da-da, last name, uh, put her in. And then when he ran against her, Boudin, um, he defeated her narrowly, but he defeated her. 
And so the mayor and the DA, Chesa Boudin, did not see eye to eye. At least that's how it's been reported. The bottom line, dear listener, is changing a DA is not going to change the crime situation. It's about what you're doing specifically. It's about the measures and implementations that you do. And the bottom line is, I do hope that um, if this is the right person who um, allegedly stabbed Bobbly, that there is a resolution to this and that this person is is tried and convicted. And I say that for any crime that happens in San Francisco. And the press conference yesterday made it clear the uh, police chief, Bill Scott, said this. And uh, we work hard on every case of crime in this city. And I'm glad he said that because, and he's a young, he's a black man uh, who's a police chief. In fact, all the officials in San Francisco who are of any real consequence, the top three of them are all black. The black female mayor of San Francisco, London Breed, the black female district attorney of San Francisco, Brooke Jenkins, and the black male uh, police chief of San Francisco, Bill Scott. So uh, the bottom line here is that he said, you know, we work hard on every case. And I think that's true. I believe that they do. I know there's a rap about San Francisco police that they're not very attentive. They really don't do much. And some of that is actually quite true. San Francisco police, um, what they do do well is, well, kill black people, uh, kill brown people. I mean, they got that down pat. Yeah, they, they, they do. Um, maybe the rate of that is not as severe as it is in New York or in other police departments. But the fact is, look, um, they have that down pat. Just ask the family of Mario Woods. Um, and the bottom line here, dear listener, is that uh, the notion um, that, uh, you know, that somehow um, changing DAs is going to change what's going on, it, it's much deeper than that. It's a system, okay? I think you know that by now. Um, but the thing is, is that I do believe that the police department does work hard here to try to solve crime. A lot of crime goes unsolved. In fact, most crime in any city, anywhere in the country, and the world goes unsolved. It just does. It does. Less than, what, 5% of any of these cases get brought for prosecution. Maybe I'm a little bit drastic on the number there. But it ain't 50%. It isn't. It's a lot of, a lot of these uh, crimes that do get uh, uh, people get arrested for never see a courtroom, the inside of a courtroom. They get plea bargained out. Most, most of the crime that people who get apprehended for committing crime, they plea bargain. That's what happens. Most of the stuff never gets in the inside of the courtroom. It's maybe 10% max. Max. Anyway, I know I've spent a lot of time talking about this. But I want to spend some time now, dear listener. Well, I'll take a break. And I want to get to the kernel of the matter. And that is this. Two things. The notion of and the myth of bad apples in police departments. We hear that word all the time. Oh, it's a few bad apples. These people who are apologists for police, right? And the notion of that, the myth of that. And I also want to talk about whether or not this idea that... Ha Do you think that having more police on the streets reduces crime? Because I want to tell you about that too. And I've got view that you might want to listen to. All of that coming up right after this. And by the way, I am so sure, oh yes, I'm very sure, 
that those tech bros and venture capitalists will offer a swift apology for getting it wrong about who the alleged killer was of their friend, Bob Lee. to hear may be offensive quote i will bury that n-word in my field it was a hard r on purpose unquote quote make these n-words eat expletive you're looking at just two of the text messages containing racially explicit language allegedly sent between some officers of the antioch police department you know these are not alleged text messages these are the text messages um, so uh, in terms of the public, you know, I can only uh, continue to reassure the public that we're working towards building a stronger, better department. The Antioch police officers are witnesses in a murder case in Contra Costa County. The texts are part of a 21-page investigative report by the DA's office filled with derogatory, homophobic, and sexually explicit language and photographs. Last Friday, a Contra Costa Superior Court judge read the names of the 14 and and ruled in favor of disclosing the information in the report to the defense. Cron 4 has obtained a copy of the report and one text exchange and APD officer writes he will buy someone a prime rib dinner at the house of prime rib if they shoot Mayor Lamar Thorpe with a less lethal projectile. Uh, residents should be concerned, absolutely. This isn't funny, this isn't a joke, this isn't... We're at a serious crossroads at the city of Antioch. You're either with racist or you're not. Antioch Mayor Lamar Thorpe wants the city council to have the police department's internal affairs unit audited. Do you want audits? Let's get an audit of your text messages. Some in attendance during Tuesday night's council meeting took issue. Tempers flared between this man and Thorpe during the public comment portion. Dog whistle racism. <laughs> an apologist for what's absolutely wrong in this city. That is, you want to go outside right now? Let's go. I just go ahead and clarify what happened there. Well, let's start with the clarifying. I didn't ask anybody to step outside. He said, let's step outside. And I responded with, oh, you want to step outside? Uh, so I was responding to him. However, despite major concern about the text messages by officers in the police department, some of those same officers are also the subject of an FBI probe and the tension surrounding the subject of race in Antioch. Mayor Thorpe says he remains hopeful. Um, I have confidence that this uh, city has, has has gone through a lot in its 150-year history. Hazik Medyun, Crown 4 News. Dear listener, that was a report, um, I think yesterday, on the news uh, on Cron 4, as you heard, here in San Francisco, California. And that was the mayor you heard from as well during that news report, Mayor Lamar Thorpe. He is a black man who has been mayor since 2020. He was elected to the mayoralty then. Uh, He ran on a platform of reforming the police in Antioch. And I will give you some background on on him and on Antioch. He is 42 years of age, uh, the mayor. And uh, he had been the city council previously. In Antioch, A-N-T-I-O-C-H, Antioch. Now, Antioch is a town that is 45 miles east 
of San Francisco. It is in the East Bay. So you'd have to typically, um, if you're driving, drive across the San Francisco Bay Bridge, which is on I-80, I-80, Interstate 80. That will take you east to Antioch across the Bay Bridge. And again, it's about 45 miles away from San Francisco, 45 miles east of San Francisco. And it's probably around roughly 30 miles or so away from Oakland or thereabouts, 35 miles maybe east of Oakland, California, which is, of course, uh, in the East Bay as well. Antioch right now, if you look at the population, again, I want to give you a little background here before I get into what you just heard and explore the topic that I want to get to, the main event here that I'm that I'm getting on. Um, Antioch is a town that is one of the most racially diverse towns in the Northern California Bay Area, in the San Francisco Bay Area. It really is. San Francisco is not diverse racially. It's just not. I don't want to, I don't want to hear it. Um, San Francisco has roughly what, if, if make thirty something percent Asian, forty uh, something percent white, and less than again, less than five percent black, something like that. Anyway, in Antioch, it's a different story, different story, um, different story. It's roughly forty percent white in Antioch. It is about thirty, and I'm just trying to. Roughly, I don't remember if it's at thirty. Let me let me just make sure that I don't have my notes here. I'm doing this from the top of my head, but I I need to consult. And I wrote this down somewhere, but anyway, um, I don't remember where it is. But um, I can tell you that it's roughly as of around before the 2020 census, um, the demographics in Antioch is around 40% white, 21% black, 33% Latino, and 11% Asian. That's a much more racially diverse mix of people than in San Francisco, California. So very, very clearly much more racially diverse, right? So that's the lay of the land with Antioch, A-N-T-I-O-C-H. Now, the mayor of Antioch is a black man. And if you look at the police, mm, the police are a different complexion, shall we say. And many of the police there are white. And the police union in Antioch never supported Mayor Thorpe. Never supported them. Never supported them. So Mayor Lamar Thorpe, when he was running for that office of mayor, he was not supported by the police union. They opposed him. Hey, he wanted to improve policing. So no, we don't want to improve policing. We're not going to support him. That's what, I mean, they didn't say that, but their actions show that. And your actions speak louder than your words. So now there's this, Blatant attack on the mayor, a racist attack on him by police officers in the Antioch Police Department with racist texts, as you just heard, read out. Of course, they censored it and changed the language. And threats 
death threats on this mayor. How is this mayor supposed to trust that the security that he has and his family has isn't compromised? How is he supposed to trust that it's not compromised after this? After this. And the thing is, this notion that there is, oh, a bad apple or two in police departments, it's just a bunch of hogwash. Now, you didn't have to wait this long to know that. You didn't have to wait this long to hear me say that, to know that already, because you already knew that, dear listener, you knew that. But what I am trying to get at here is something a lot deeper, a lot deeper, this notion, oh, oh, gosh, yeah, well, yeah, there's a bad apple element. When one of the 17 officers or one of the 17 law enforcement people, police, that has been investigated by the FBI, that would be Merrick Garland and company, Justice Department, FBI, right? Merrick Garland is the Attorney General of the United States. He was a busy man yesterday, by the way. Of course, uh, he had a a 45-second announcement about the arrest of someone who is uh, allegedly put secrets, uh, U.S. government secrets, all over the place on the internet. And that's going to be some case. And, and now you've got right-wingers championing that piece of garbage who's 21 years of age, white man. What do you expect? You know, champion him. And I remember just a few short years ago when another white man did, or did somewhat the same thing, Edward Snowden. There were so many people on the right wing who were killing him crucifying him. Now, Ed, now Edward Snowden is a Russian citizen and he's never coming back to the United States because he knows what's going to wait for him if he does. And now, just six, seven, what, eight years after that happened in 2015, you got the right wing championing someone who's making the country more vulnerable and less safe by the leaking of government secrets. Now, of course, he has to be tried and all the rest of it is alleged. But again, this is where this country has gone. And I want to get back now to this notion of bad apples. Because there's no such thing as bad apples. Because there's got to be a system in place to even have so-called bad apples in the first place. And what's more than that, dear listener? The bad apples are the rule. And there is no bad apple. It's called the system. And while you or I might be tempted to say the system is rotten, I am tempted to tell you, I'm more than tempted, it's not even temptation, it's the system was designed this way, to be this way. And I'm going to further expound upon that with some documentation, not just my rhetorical flourishes, dear listener. But I do want to play you a second report to just push this even further. Or emphasize, my tongue is all over the place. Emphasize this even further. And here's the report now from, I believe it's KPIX, excuse me, CBS News Bay Area here in San Francisco. Listen to this report. Same matter, same story. Again, with new explosive developments and a text messaging scandal that has the Antioch Police Department in turmoil. 
Good evening, I'm Ryan Yamamoto. And I'm Elizabeth Cook. Antioch's mayor is calling for the firing of 26 officers accused of exchanging a slew of racist slurs and jokes. As Ann Makovic reports, the mayor says one message even threatened his life. And Liz, these messages are vile, many involving the N-word. A judge overseeing the criminal case says the content is, quote, so offensive it could incite further hate or racial animus. We caught up with Antioch's mayor right after he got the chance to read some of them. We kill more Mexicans so that blacks can feel safe. Get the hell out of here. They, these people can go, they can go fly a kite for all I care. Get out of my police department. We don't need them here. The message specifically targeting the mayor, he says an officer texted that he would, quote, buy someone a ribeye if they target the mayor. So he is promising major reforms right now. The mayor wants an independent audit of the police department's internal affairs process. He wants the police chief to report directly to the city council. The council is meeting to discuss all of this today. And he's ordering the police chief to present an emergency plan to fill officer gaps caused by this FBI investigation that now has about two dozen officers on paid leave. Black people pay for that. Latinos pay for that. Immigrants pay for that. Members of the LGBTQ plus community pay for that. And to get that's the result, we don't need them here. The text messages were brought to light last month as a result of an ongoing federal probe into Antioch and Pittsburgh police officers alleging fraud, bribery, drug distribution, and civil rights violations related to the use of force in the department. One of the officers accused of sharing the racist text, Rick Hoffman, the president of Antioch's police union. Now, this could obviously affect a lot of criminal cases that any of these officers had anything to do with. We contacted the district attorney and the public defender for their take on that and have not yet heard back. And again, we have not seen these text messages for ourselves yet, but we're told we will be getting redacted copies of them very soon. And we'll share them with you when we do. Bad apples. Really? 26 officers? I said 17. It's 26. 26 officers? Administrative leave. 26 officers. There's probably even more than that. This is not bad apples. This is a system. And this myth, this notion of bad apples. Ooh, there's a bad apple. The system allows for this because that's what this system is designed to do. Remember, dear listener, that the police in the United States were born out of enslavement patrols. That's where they originated from. I believe it was in the early 1800s, around 1830s or thereabouts. And by the way, the KKK was founded in 1865 or thereabouts. Not necessarily any kind of coincidence. This is a system. And it's extremely dangerous. You know, once upon a time, there would be real outrage about something like this. Both in the news and in response. But we are now so blasé now. And we've been inundated with these incidents one after the other. That people don't even respond to the boiling water anymore. I mean, excuse me for being graphic and vivid. But it would be as if boiling hot water was poured on your skin and you just didn't feel it anymore. Because this is a boiling hot water event, isn't it? I would say so. Text messages from police officers 
racist text messages and text messages threatening the life of the mayor of the city that you are the police officer for. Yeah, that's a boiling hot water moment. That's freaking boiling, scalding hot. But, you know, you and I really don't even respond to this anymore with the same kind of fervor and outrage and passion that we might have responded to it in, say, 1980s, 1990s, perhaps. We've just completely gone soft. And the iPhone and the technology age, the automation age, the corporate news media, the way it reports things, no one feels a thing now. And that's what's so dangerous. So dangerous that someone, not someone, but 26 someones, including the police union chief, the head of the police unions doing this. This is entirely systemic. And that's why I laugh at reform. And I don't mean to laugh at the mayor of Antioch, Mayor Thorpe. And I'm sorry, you know, Mayor Lamar Thorpe, I'm not laughing at you, sir. I I just laugh at this notion of reform. You cannot reform a system that's based on violence and anti-blackness. You have to destroy that system. You just have to. Because it ain't going to reform. Now, you might be able to make some changes here, change there, and it'll shine up the edge of that and, you know, polish off this edge and put some brasso on that over there. But you can't get rid of a You can't reform this. You can't reform people who are racist. You can't reform Racist. You can't reform institutional racism. You have to get rid of it. You have to absolutely dismantle the system that puts it in play. You can't just reform anti-black racism. You can't do that. That's like saying we're going to defeat terror. That's what George W. Bush used to say. We're going to defeat terror. Terrorism and terror are tactical. You can't defeat tactics. Tactics come from people. What you have to be able to do instead is defeat and get rid of, eradicate the system that these people move around in. The environs. You have to, that's what you have to take on. The war on terror. I mean, again, another false thing. You, there's no war on terror. There's no such thing as a war on a tactic. And there's no such thing as reforming this. Reforming people sending racist text messages and threatening the life of the mayor of Antioch. A black man. There is no such thing as reforming that. And there's no such thing accordingly and therefore as a bad apple or bad apples. 26 cops, including the police union head. Give me a break. This police union is the most powerful thing you got in terms of unions in this country now. Just about. The police chief genuflects to the police union. Oh, I'm going to get to the, the report there. Oh, I'm going to get to the police chief. The mayor will, will have a meeting with the police chief and da-da-da-da-da-da. Let me tell you something. The police chief basically gets hired by the freaking police union. 
I mean, I get it. The mayor appoints that person, I think, in most of these cities in this country. But my God, if the police union doesn't like the police chief, that police chief ain't lasting very long. The police unions are the ones that have all the power in this country, mate. I'll tell you something for nothing. That's exactly who has a lot of power in this country. Police unions. They're the, again, I'll say this again. They are the most, basically the most powerful union you got in the United States. You've got, whether it's in Ferguson, you've got all these cases. One of these people in Minnesota after George Floyd's killing, the murder, lynching of George Floyd, that guy is basically in the Klan. And he was a piece of garbage supporter in 2020. You can't reform this. You cannot. And so what I'm saying here is, and I hope that they do nail all 26 of these pieces of garbage. And I do hope that they're thrown in prison, which I don't know. I doubt that they will. I don't want to say anything about it. I don't know. The FBI investigation needs to be robust, and I think it hopefully will be and is. And that report you heard, those two reports were this week. This last one you just heard was from April 10th. That was just a few days ago, this week. Monday of this week, I think. Monday of this week. And the other one was also this week, or maybe yesterday the day before. But the, both those reports you heard were this week. And I'm telling you, dear listener, this now is a real issue. It's been a real issue for hundreds of years. This is the police departments in this country came from the enslavement patrols. Those patrols were the ones that would bring back or kill black people who were enslaved in the United States to white enslavement owners who would own black people as property. You don't reform stuff like that. That's where the police in this country came from. You can't reform that. You got to destroy that. You have to destroy that system. You have to get rid of it. And then in its place, put a system there that values life, that puts love first, that affirms the value of every human being, black human beings, white, everybody, LGBTQ plus human beings, all the people. That's what the mayor was talking about in that second report you heard. And again, we pay taxes for these police. We pay taxes. I'll talk about that in a bit too. We pay taxes for this. This isn't about bad apples. This is about a freaking system. And you've got a growing population of Antioch that's black and that's brown and that's Asian. You know who the only demographic in terms of population is decreasing in Antioch? Guess which? White people. The population of white people in Antioch is decreasing. The populations of black, brown, and Asian people in Antioch are increasing. And that may help you to see why all of these anti-abortion bills are being passed all across the United States, most recently by the Florida fascist-in-chief, Ron DeFascist, Ron DeSantis, who late last night in Florida signed a bill into law 
that would ban abortion after six weeks. Florida now joins both Georgia and Texas with this heinous ban. Six weeks. Are you kidding me? Most people don't find out that they're pregnant until, what, eight, nine weeks, ten weeks? So in other words, when you find out you're pregnant and it's after six weeks, you're screwed. If you can't take care of that baby, you're screwed. If you, I mean, really, this is evil. This is evil. This is Handmaid's Tale. This is Gilead. It's what Joy Reid was telling you in the episode I did the other day. And people think that she was joking. You better think again. I mean, here's the thing. Here's the thing. We pay taxes for this garbage. We pay taxes for this. And these people are sending racist text messages. Go solve some freaking crimes. Go freaking arrest people. You have a lot of time in your hands in Antioch to be friggin' well writing racist texts, sending messages, 26 people. This is a freaking network. This is a system. It's not some bad apples. For God's sake, man. Dear listener, welcome back. Now, look, if this were about bad apples, those bad apples would have gone by now, supposedly, right? If this was about bad apples and not a system, I think we would have rooted these bad apples out a long time ago. The so-called good police would have done that. But there, to me, is no such thing as good police. There are police who do their jobs well. There are police who do that well, you know, but... When it comes to dealing with the system, the police aren't good. They look the other way while their colleagues who do all the nasty things continue to do them. They won't ever get involved. There's a blue wall of silence, that blue line, right? That blue wall. And no one's going to cross that wall. Unless you're Frank Serpico. And that nearly cost him his life. Right? Go and look up Frank Serpico, okay? Last name, S-E-R-P-I-C-O. By the way, there was a movie from 1972 and 1973, I think it's 1973, that was done on Frank Serpico in New York Police Department. In fact, the main character, Serpico, was played by Al Pacino. The movie was called Serpico. Good movie and a good performance by Al Pacino. Go watch that movie and also look research Frank Serpico, S-E-R-P-I-C-O. Right? That's a good cop. He is the definition of a good, uh, the definition of a good cop, as far as I'm concerned. Right? There's a black woman who, and I forget her name now, in Buffalo, New York, who saved a black man from being murdered by one of her police officer colleagues. She actually got in between them and had to put her colleague in a chokehold or in a some kind of, I forget, she either punched him, white male. She either punched him, punched this white cop who's her fellow colleague or choke-holded him or what, I forgot what she did. She did something to prevent him from killing an un- a, a black man. I'm not even gonna say armed, unarmed. That To me, that does not, anyway, I'll go, that'll be another episode why I think that doesn't matter as much as you might think it does. 
obviously, if someone's armed, they are a potential threat to you. But I can tell you why. Because we've seen white people who are armed with all kinds of things, machetes, all kinds of golf clubs, knives, guns, and they rarely, if ever, get killed. Rarely. Now, of course, in mass shooting situations, we've seen that happen. But on a day-to-day basis, oh, they find every way to avoid killing a white person with a gun. Even in some mass shootings, we saw this, right, with Dylan Roof, who, uh, you know, you know kill, executed nine black people in South Carolina in 2015. We saw this with the top supermarket executions of 10 black people last year in Buffalo, New York. They didn't, the police didn't kill that white terrorist now, did they? And he had guns up the wazoo. The guy, the white guy who killed um, mostly Mexican people at, in El Paso at that Walmart there. I forget which year that was, maybe 2018, 19 or thereabouts, whenever it was. They didn't, ki- they didn't kill his ass. And I'm not advocating that they kill anyone. What I'm saying is, is that police, as I've said before, again, whether I talked about being in the news coverage and how crime is covered when a black person is allegedly accused, allegedly committing that crime or white people are, how different that is. Same thing with the shooter and how the police approach that person based on if they're black or if they're white. And if the black person didn't even shoot, you know that the police will go in full bore and kill that black person. Whereas with a white person, a lot of times when they have a freaking gun and they've just killed a load of people, these cops won't kill them or do anything to them. They'll freaking well, and they have guns on them. These people who do these killings, obviously. And yeah, invite them to Burger King. They'll just do a Burger King. You, hey, you want, we're going to uh, do a jaunt to Burger King. Uh, we're going to go and do a round to Burger King. You, do you want something? Ah, oh, come on. I mean, Dylan Ruth. I mean, come on. This is not about bad apples. There's no such thing. As I said, if there are good cops, they're good cops like the person in Buffalo, the black woman, the black female cop who stopped her white male colleague from killing a black man who, by the way, was handcuffed. I forget, I forget her name now. Carol, 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 some, oh God, it kills me. I really wish I remembered her name. And she saved the life. And by the way, she continues to write letters back and forth to the black man who, whose life she saved. And by the way, that brother is thankful every day to her. Because if it wasn't for her and it was some other person there, whether that person was a black cop or a white cop or whomever who just stood there, he would be dead. He wouldn't be here today. Wouldn't be here today. So that's what a, that's the definition of a good cop as far as I'm concerned. Frank Serpico, definition of a good cop as far as I'm concerned. Try to expose police brutality and corruption, all these things in the department while he was in that department. That is a good cop. Now, the people who do their jobs, I wouldn't say much say that they're good cops. They're just doing their jobs and they're doing them good. That's a good thing. Positive. They're doing their jobs what good enough and that's fine. But I'm talking about people who challenge the system. Those are the good cops. People who try to overturn systems. Those are the good cops. Overturn systems that are violent and anti-black. Violent and anti-woman. Violent and anti-LGBTQIA. Those people are the good police.
as far as I'm concerned. And they're not nearly enough of them. Okay? That's my postulation here on this episode. Not nearly enough of them. And if this was about bad apples, well, the system would have got rid of those bad apples. But no, it's not bad apples. It's the system. And that's what needs to go. Now, how do we bring that about? There's many ways to bring it about. Many ways. You absolutely take care of root and branch changes in police. And you structure policing in a very different way. Now, look, I'm going to make a point here to make another point. Okay? This is from the USA Today. USA Today, 2019, February 1st of that year. This connects to a point I made earlier about the enslavement patrols in this country and police coming from them. That's where police originated. South Carolina police, says this headline, make millions by seizing cash and and property. Most of it comes from black people. This is written by Anna Lee, Nathaniel Carey, and Mike Ellis. Actually, it's from the Greenville News, syndicated to United USA Today, February 1st, 2019. Second headline, subset headline. In South Carolina, civil forfeiture, civil forfeiture, God, I can't even talk. In South Carolina, civil forfeiture targets black people's money. Most of all, exclusive investigative data shows. Greenville, South Carolina. When a man barged into Isaiah Kinlock's apartment and broke a bottle over his head, the North Charleston resident called 911. After cops arrived on that day in 2015, they searched the injured man's home and found an ounce of marijuana. Maybe they planted it there, dear listener. So they took $1,800 in cash from his apartment and kept it. When Eamon Cools Lartigue was driving on Interstate 85 in Spartanburg County. Deputies stopped him for speeding. The Atlanta businessman wasn't criminally charged in the April 2016 incident. Deputies discovered $29,000 in his car, though, and decided to take it. When Brandy Cook dropped her friend off at a Myrtle Beach sports bar as a favor, drug enforcement agents swarmed her in the parking lot and found $4,670 in the car. Her friend was wanted in a drug distribution case, but Cook wasn't involved. She had no drugs and was never charged in the 2014 bust. Agents seized her money anyway. Now, wait a minute. I'm not clear on one thing about that last part I read out. Was the $4,670 Brandy Cook's or was the money seized from Brandy Cook money on her own person? Because that's what I seem to get from this, but it's not clear. And by the way, when someone asks you to drive a friend to a bar as a favor, I don't know that I would do that because... Well, it depends. It depends. It depends. Because you've got to be careful here. Anyway, but I'm not blaming Brandy Cook. But my point is those illustrations from that article, and that article goes on for a bit longer, from the USA Today, from uh, syndicated there through the Greenville News, illustrates a systemic point, the point I'm making about the system. This is a continuation of the enslavement patrols. Dear listener, the police in the United States are a continuation of the enslavement patrols. 
they still do the same things they did in the 1820s and 30s when the police uh, came out of those enslavement patrols. They still kill black people. That's not changed in 400 years. That has not changed in 250 years or however many years you want to add. It's not changed. I mean, how many videos do you have to watch to know this? This is a system. And again, with all due respect to Mayor Thorpe in Antioch, you can't reform this. You've got to eradicate it. And you eradicate it by putting together laws that forbid this from happening. And then you, if those laws are broken, have stiff penalties. And you erase and eradicate that system by putting in a different system, one that values different things. Not values killing black people, not values stealing money from them or from anyone else. The question becomes, what are the police for? What is the function of a police officer in this country? I know, yes, I can say it. They're there to kill black people, right? Your answer might be different to that. But I want to ask you now, before I continue to make the point I'm going to make here, what do you think the police function is in the United States? I've asked this question on social media a few weeks ago. I've got some very interesting and different responses, robust ones. It was good to get these responses Many of them from white people who follow me on social media. But I, I, I'm asking you, honestly, I'm just asking you. What is the function of police here in the United States? What is the function? Now, not what you want the function to be. What is the function of the police in this country based on what you know? Because again, the society, and I go back to the socialization thing, because a lot of this is grounded in socialization and how we perceive things and how we perceive who commits crime and how the media reports it. I told you, I am not doing this willy-nilly. These episodes are unscripted, but there is a point made and there is a unifying theme, theme here. I, I, I'm just asking you, what do you think the function of the police are or is or were or are in this country, United States? And I'm telling you, it's to kill black people and to steal money from them. That hasn't changed since the enslavement patrols. To kill black people and to make money off of enslavement, having them, having us, our ancestors, build this country with free enslavement labor. Free, F-R-E-E, making them rich white people rich in the process white men rich in the process don't by the way i say white people because look if you think that there were not white women back then who were involved in enslaving black people you better think again you better think again go read believe me you don't have to watch 12 years a slave to know this you can read some concrete books that are written about this how white women in the united states in the South and elsewhere, because there was enslavement beyond the South, folks. There was enslavement in New York State. There was enslavement in Brooklyn, New York. There was enslavement in the city of New York. And if you think that there weren't white women who played a part in enslavement, you 
really must think again. Let's think again. Okay? Think again. The function of police in this country is to, when it comes to black people, certainly, to kill black people, to so-called put black people in their place, and to make money off of us. This article from USA Today, South Carolina police make millions from 2019, make millions by seizing cash and property. Most of it comes from black people. So they're targeting black people, just like Ferguson. The same reports that were done on Ferguson, you know, remember Mike Brown, who was murdered by Darren, whatever his last name was, that cop. And then he got on 2020 and said, oh, I'm so afraid for my life. This is a big hulking six foot whatever white thug going on about, oh, I'm so I felt like Hulk. I felt like uh, a little boy with Hulk Hogan. And by the way, Michael Brown, Mike Brown was 18. This guy, Darren, Darren Wilson is his name, was like 26, 27. Oh, I feel like a little kid. Oh, God, you always try to this bullcrap, this racism that always gets per- perpetuated in this country by a lot of people who are white. And they say, oh, he looks much, much older for his age. And the guy's 18 friggin' years old. And that's what this culture does, this society does. Tries to make black girls and boys a lot older. And then tries to infantilize people, white people in their 40s and 30s. Oh, they're children. And these MFers are 45 and 50 and 60. Oh, they're children. Oh, shut up. But then you got some seven or eight year old black girl and and you're trying to make her like she's a friggin' adult. Shut up. That's what happens in this country. And you do that so that you can justify any bad thing that happens to a black person. So any racist thing or violent thing that's done to a black person by a white person or whomever, you're now justifying that. Well, she was a lot older than I thought she looked. But she, she's a lot older than I thought. Uh, than I thought she looked a lot older than I thought. You know, it's garbage. She looked a lot older to me. God, there's so many cases of police doing all kinds of nasty, horrible things to black women and white women as well. And black women, particularly, if you remember Daniel Holdsclaw out of Oklahoma, that cop out there half white, half Asian cop who raped and uh, harassed so many black women, like a hundred black women over a ten, whatever year stretch. And he started to bawl his eyes out like a little baby boy when his ass got convicted. Sorry, he was sorry that he got convicted, not sorry that he was caught. I mean, not sorry that uh, to the families of the, some of them were killed, I think. Most of them were raped. It was just evil. Bawling his eyes out. And I say like a little boy, and I'm not trying to infantilize him. But what I'm saying is, is that this is systemic, folks. Goes to my last previous point. Again, this is the this is what enslavement patrols are in 2023. It's not changed since the 1800s. It's not. What happened in the 1800s? The rape of black women. It still happens. It's happen- it happens every day when it comes to police. And anyone else for that matter. This is what is going on. And people need to open their eyes. This is a system. Ferguson 
all these traffic tickets that were being written in Ferguson, Missouri, around and aiming to you know black people being uh, forced to come into court and pay all these exorbitant fees just to try to get these tickets resolved, and then they've got to deal with costs and money, and then that is a criminal record if they don't show up. Some there are many black people in the town of Ferguson can't couldn't afford to show up, and so it would be criminal records for these people. I mean, it, it's just horrible for the people who were for black folk who were trying to do to deal with all of this. It's a freaking criminal enterprise that these white people in power were setting up. Go read the articles. Don't just listen to me. Read the articles. They're all out there. This is a system. You can't reform this. This is the capitalistic evil. Right? There's a book called Capitalism and Slavery by Eric Williams. You should read that book as well. This is what's going on. Uh, Come on now. And again, this idea that the police are, oh, this is a bad, this is a system. It's a system. And I want to get to the next portion, which is crime. And this notion that crime gets lower when you have more police. Do you think that crime actually decreases when there are more police officers? I've got something to tell you right after this. So I've talked a lot about this notion of bad apples and completely demolishing that idea. It's all about a system. It's systemic. To trivialize this to some bad apples is to really do a tremendously unjust thing, which is to trivialize and to obscure what the real issues are. And you're dealing with an institution of anti-blackness, an institution of capitalism, an institution that profits off of the evil behaviors of the police, profits off of the pain of black people. This is what this is. That's what the police are in the United States. That's what they clearly are. It's documented and demonstrated. It's, it's history. It's the present. It's obvious. So that's where we are with that. You don't reform that. You have to eradicate it. And as I said, put into place something that is life-affirming and restructure policing and completely change what policing is or what it means. That's why I asked, what is the definition? What's your definition of the police? What do you think police are doing? Or I should really say, I ask, what do you think the police function is? What's the function of police in the United States? If you can give a, a ready-made answer to that in one sentence, then that's really good. But I think most people won't be able to get that to one sentence, except if they're saying something like to kill black people, to maintain order and control over black people. Really, that's about as succinct as it gets, because they allow white people to do all kinds of things. So it's not about order when it comes to white folk. It's always order when it comes to black people. Order, order, order. And we're not the ones doing anything and we comply with with the commands that we're given from police, and we still get killed by the police. So, you know, we the police still kill us. Put your hands on the steering wheel, sir. Miss, put your hand on... And they still shoot and kill us. So, this is not about order. Okay? It's not. It's not. What I want to get to now is this idea of 
More police. More police are needed. We, we hear that all the time, you and I, dear listener. We hear this. Well, we need more police. We're short of police here in San Francisco. And they are, actually. We have about 500 officers short. We need more police. And, you know, of course, that's a matter of budget. It's a matter of what the governor does as well. And anything additional in terms of assistance from the feds, from the, the present administration, President Biden's administration, about all of that. Now, look, you have to look at something here because this also plays into everything I talked about already with the money and everything else. You have to look at the militarization of police because that has done nothing to stop crime. That has done nothing to stop crime or lower it. And so when you hear people say, oh, more police are needed, it's really dangerous here now. More police are needed. Let me tell you that that is another fallacy. It's another fallacy. Here is another story. This is from the Marshall Project. This also appeared in the USA Today, February 12, 2019. The headline, more cops, is it the answer to fighting crime? Simone Weichelbaum and Wendy Thomas wrote this article, February 12, 2019. Note, this story was a collaboration between the Marshall Project, the Memphis Commercial Appeal, and USA Today. Memphis, Memphis Mayor, this is 2019, Jim Strickland. We've talked about Memphis, haven't we, quite a bit this year, and the state of Tennessee. Memphis Mayor Jim Strickland took office in 2016, vowing to fight the city's high violent crime rate by beefing up a dwindling police force. His most novel idea, use an advisory body, the Memphis Shelby Crime Commission, to funnel anonymous private donations from the city's elite to reward cops who remain on the force. His wish list, dubbed, the Sky Blue Strategy, and outlined in emails obtained by the Marshall Project, was ambitious. $48.2 million, including $12.7 million to subsidize housing and private school tuition for police families and $8 million for take-home cars. So far, the commission has channeled $6.1 million into the city budget, most of it for police retention bonuses. I'm going to skip ahead briefly here. The commission has refused to disclose the amount of their individual contributions. I don't know how much different businesses gave, Strickland said. I'm thankful they gave money. And if they didn't want to say individually how much it was, then I am fine with that. Data shows, I'm skipping ahead again, that the raw numbers of police have declined over the past five years. And the rate of police officers per 1,000 residents has been dropping for two decades. At the same time, the violent crime rate has also dropped. After at least 16 years of growing police agencies, the nation lost more than 23,000 police officers from 2013 to 2016, according to a U.S. Justice Department survey, bringing the total down to about 7,000. 
300,000. Two-thirds of 397 law enforcement agencies reported in a December 2019 survey that they have seen a decrease in applicants compared to five years ago. But, according to several policing experts, cities are too focused on raw numbers, hiring consultant after consultant in a desperate quest to increase their headcount. A cottage industry of specialists caters to jurisdictions hunting for an optimal number of cops. Most police departments have issues not with the number of officers, it's with how they are deployed and scheduled, said Alexander Weiss, a police staffing consultant whose clients have included police departments in Chicago. Albuquerque, and New Orleans. It's more important what the officers do versus how many of them there are. Responding to public panic over urban violence during the 1990s, President Bill Clinton signed off on millions of dollars in federal funds to hire thousands of local cops across the country. In 1997, two years after the money started to trickle out of Washington, the nation had 242 police officers for every 100,000 residents. By 2016, that number had dropped to 217 police officers as law enforcement agencies shed jobs in the aftermath of a national recession while the nation's population grew. The national violent crime rate over those 19 years dropped by 37%. According to FBI data, in 1997, the national violent crime rate was 611 per 100,000 inhabitants. In 2016, the violent crime rate was 386.3 out of 100,000 inhabitants. So the crime rate dropped by almost 50% over those 19 years per 100,000 inhabitants. And that's with less police officers on the streets in the United States. Fears of rising crime and shrinking officer counts have emerged as common concerns in cities across the nation, from Dallas to Detroit to Memphis and elsewhere. Now, this article doesn't tell you who those common concerns are coming from, but they're coming from people in the media, news media, they're coming from politicians, and they're coming from a lot of reactionaries and right-wingers and pundits. That's where that's all coming from, as far as I can see. Back to the article. Adding more cops to a violent city seems like an obvious fix, but there is conflicting research on the question of whether more cops drive down crime rates. 
James McCabe, a retired New York Police Department official who travels the country as a police staffing consultant, says there is little clear connection between staffing numbers and crime. New York City made the conscious decision to reduce the number of cops, he noted in an interview, and crime continued to go down. It's not what you have, it's what you are doing with them. I'm going to leave it there. I'm not even going to read the rest of the article. That was James McCabe there with that last line. The crime continued to go down in New York City when the cops, the number of cops were reduced. And again, the last part of the quote, it's not what you have, it's what you are doing with them. That is one of the most important lines from that article. And there's a lot more of the article I'm not going to read out. And that's my point as well, dear listener. The number of cops has nothing to do with whether the crime rate goes down or up. Having more cops on the street does not mean that crime will go down. In fact, it's more likely to be the opposite, if anything. Because when you've got more police on the street, especially the police that I talk about, there's more likely to be more crime because the police are likely to be the ones committing it. I'm going to play you some audio in a few minutes time, but I want to let you know that if you had more police, there's likely to be more crime, not necessarily from civilians, but from the police themselves because of what I've been talking about this system. This is not bad apples. It's a system. And as I say, I don't think, having more police on the streets makes you safer. In fact, it makes you less safe. And if you're black or brown, it definitely makes you less safe. That's why I keep asking, what do you think the function of a police officer is? What do you think the function of police are in the United States? Because if you have more of what your definition of those police are, if you think the police, and I know they are, killers, and they kill black people, why would you think that crime would go down when you add more of those people onto your force? Because you're going to have people committing more crimes against black people. So the crime rate will actually go up. It's not about the numbers, it's what you do with them. And even more to the point than that, it's the money that you're spending on police. What are you doing with these budgets? See, that's really where the deal is, dear listener. It's the money, honey. And the taxpayer, you and I, are paying for all of this. As I said earlier, as you heard earlier, from the mayor of Antioch, Mayor Thorpe, I really am trying to get this across because I'm telling you, having more police on the street does not mean the crime rate goes down. That's a fantasy. That's a reactionary fantasy. It's the same thing as saying we're going to be safer with more guns on the street. No, you freaking well won't. 
It's the same kind of principle. People, these Republicans who say, oh, well, if we had more people with guns in this school, you wouldn't have this shooting because, you know, the good guy with the gun is better than the bad guy with the gun. And I can put paid, I can knock that down right now and put paid to that garbage by showing you Uvalde. Remember Uvalde in Uvalde, Texas, with that elementary school or whatever school it was? And you had all those so-called good guys with guns, those cops, those sheriffs, who stood there for an hour and a half while they were listening, like perverted school children, to the sounds of children's heads getting blown off by gunfire. The good guys with the guns were standing there a hundred feet from Carnageville, USA, rubbing Purell on their hands, some of them, when they really should be rubbing blood on their hands because they had plenty of that on their hands that day last year in Uvalde, Texas. So all the police, there was hundreds of police that were called to that school. And there were dozens and dozens and dozens of them standing less than 100 feet, around 100 feet away from the classroom. They were chickens, chicken crappers. They didn't go in there. They stood there listening to the sounds of gunfire. Uh, that's not funny. I'm not saying that as a joke. I'm not trying to invoke Simon and Garfunkel. But I am trying to tell you that this notion of more police, more police, more police does not reduce crime. The notion that more police, more police reduces crime is nonsense. It's this feel-good excuse for putting more money in police budgets and militarizing the police. It's how you deploy these police. It's how you're utilizing them. As James McCabe said. I hate the word training police. Because they, the system trains them to do what they're doing. They're killing machines. When it comes to us as black folk. But this notion that more police makes you safer is garbage and that it reduces crime. I just read you the statistics from the FBI. The violent crime rate went down when there were less police on the streets. In New York, I just quoted you James McCabe, a retired New York Police Department official. Crime went down after New York City made the conscious decision to reduce the number of police. It's about how efficient the police are. How efficiently are you as a city utilizing and deploying the police? Because let me tell you something. The idea that last week, dear listener, that the entire New York City Police Department was on standby for that piece of garbage in Lower Manhattan while he was being arrested. The entire force was on standby. And that's in New York City as well, the NYPD. That is not a good use of policing. And it's a waste of taxpayer money. It's a waste of taxpayer money. We can't have the entire city of New York's police department freaking well on standby for this piece of garbage. That's just nonsense. There's crime going on. There's crimes to be solved. There's donuts to be eaten. 
You can't sit there downtown and be on standby, on call like a doctor at three in the morning, getting ready to be called at a moment's notice. You can't be that. That's not good policing. But New York overall, as James McKay pointed out in that 2019 article I read from, deployed police in a more efficient way. Now, that would have been under Bill de Blasio. And his relationship with the police was, well, very interesting. Let me put it that way. But the bottom line, dear listener, is having more police on the street doesn't make you safer and it doesn't reduce crime. It really doesn't. Because this is about, the system is about how these police are trained and deployed and how much of a budget is being used. In what areas are police being properly used or not properly used? Because if you've got loads of police and they're not being used in an efficient way and they're not being trained, so-called trained in a proper manner, who cares how many police you have? If they're all corrupt and rotten and killers, how, how is that going to reduce crime? It's not. Because that's a very juvenile way of saying, oh, well, you have more police, that's going to work. No, it's not. You, just like you have more guns, it's not going to work. Oh, let's have more guns. That makes it more dangerous. You have to start looking at your structure, your system. That's what you've got to look at. And this notion that crime, oh, we need more, oh, crimes, the, the reason why crime is going up is because there's not more police. And then you have police all over this country. Remember in 2020, during the execution of George Floyd and the aftermath of that execution of George Floyd by that piece of garbage? who's rotten in prison right now for 22 years and change. Remember when there were police departments in upstate New York, in Buffalo, for example. You know when that white man, the old elderly white man, got shoved to the ground by a cop and the cop who wanted to help him was told, no, 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 don't help him, let him bleed. And he was bleeding on the sidewalk. And remember that, and that guy had brain damage, I think that white male elderly man. And the thing is, is that remember when those cops... And the tactical unit in the Buffalo Police Department said that they were not going to work and they resigned their positions in the tactical unit. They stayed as police officers, mind you. They didn't quit the force, but they said, we're not going in because we don't get respect. Same thing in Atlanta. We're not going into police because after the killing of Rayshard Brooks that same summer in 2020, remember that? The Wendy's in the Wendy's parking lot and that, those, that cop shot him three times in his back as he ran from them and pointed a taser that wasn't really working at them and they shot him to death and he was running away from them. Bunch of cowardly cops, killer cops. Young brother shot and these two white cops came up to him afterwards and one of them stood on his arms, on his shoulders while he was lying dead on the sidewalk, bleeding to death and they didn't render aid to him and they just stood on him and they were angry and mad because he wrestled two of them down in that parking lot, these two weak white cops white male cops and he ran and then they got angry and they shot him shot him to death i mean and they stood on his arms and and one of them kicked him three times in his in his side as he was laying dying one of those white cops the cop that killed shot him and killed him kicked him in the and kicked him two or three times you can see it on the video these people are criminals and having more criminals in uniform on the streets ain't going to reduce crime when I come back, I'm going to play you some audio and I'm going to compound this point into the ground. 
It doesn't happen like we think it does. No one rolls the tanks. No armies meet in pitched battle. It happens quietly, little by little. And because so many think it can't happen, it does happen. Little by little, the rules change. It doesn't seem shocking or sudden. And that's the point. Fewer places to vote, longer lines. Don't worry, they say. We're just improving the system. They hope we won't notice the rules are changing because they lost the last election. They hope we just won't care enough to stop them. They believe they can take America away from us, and we won't even notice. We know who they are. We know what they want. The question is, who are we? Do we let them get away with it, or do we fight? Democracy is on the ballot. Vote while your vote still counts. The Lincoln Project is responsible for the content of this advertising. Dear listen, there is one other thing I want to say before I get to the final point. And police budgets, if we're talking about the idea of having more police, having more police on the streets does not reduce crime. It doesn't. It really doesn't. It's all a show of force and giving the public the illusion that things are safer because there's more police around. But if these police keep doing the corrupt things and the criminal things that they do, you are not more safe and crime will not go down. It will, if anything, go up. That's what I've been saying here on this episode. And dear listener, I want to talk about the budgets as well really quickly before getting to the next and final point, because budgets for police are sky high. Now, look, people will say, oh, the police are underfunded. They're not. President Biden gives you that canard. President Biden's wrong when he says, oh, the police, we need to give more money to the police. He's wrong in saying that because the police get plenty of freaking money. Thank you very much indeed. And there's a nuance here that you as a an average person and myself as an average person don't really get explained to us. But I'm going to explain it to you now. The Oakland California Police Department, for example, Parenzombe, has been getting more money. And in an article by Lisa Fernandez from July the 1st, 2021, the Oakland City Council did not cut the budget of police in 2021. The police actually got more money than in the previous two years. But the media, the way they report this, is very irresponsible for the most part. Many people in in the local news media. Oakland police were allotted $39 million more in the previous two years, according to a KTVU analysis of city records. Here's a breakdown of the actual budget numbers. Oakland, California police. Oakland, again, is what, about 15 miles east of San Francisco. Oakland police will get $674 million in the next budget cycle from July the 1st, 2021 to June 30th, 2023. So for the next two and a half months, that money will continue to come into Oakland. 
to the police department compared to the previous two-year budget cycle when they were allotted $635 million. So they got more money this time. The budget was reduced from $665 million during the 2020 cycle. Even if the budget hadn't been reduced in the middle of last year, and again, this article was written in 2021, the police department in Oakland would have been allotted about $9 million more this budget cycle compared to the last one. Part of the reason for the increase in funding over the next two years is because the overall city's budget is up, totaling $3.8 billion. Despite a global pandemic and stay-at-home orders forcing businesses to shut down and modify, there was a surplus this year because of excess revenues from the federal government and state that helped local municipalities recover from financial hardships. Before the budget was approved, Oakland, California Mayor Libby Schaff had proposed spending an additional $57 million on the police for a total of $692 million. But as is part of budget process, Councilwoman Nikki Fortunato Bass and other like-minded colleagues had proposed spending $18 million less than what Schaff had proposed. In the end, the council voted on June 24, 2021 for the Bass proposal. Here's the lot. Here's the thing that doesn't get properly explained. Now, that's KTVU here in San Francisco. I just read that article. Fox, a Fox station now, by the way. That's the local news, KTVU. Owned by Fox. What the media in general, now that's one of the rare explanations of it, but what on television doesn't get properly explained by most of these news, local news media outlets is the fact that you might have some people, advocates for police, saying, oh my goodness, we got less money than we want. We got less money. The budget's been cut. What they don't tell you is, is that the mayor might have proposed, say, 60 or $80 million. But the city council gave her instead, or gave the mayor instead, $50 million. But that's still an increase. It just wasn't increased to 80 million. It was 50 million. And then you'll have some police advocate on the television go, oh, well, we're disappointed because they cut the budget. No, they didn't freaking cut the budget. You got more money. You just didn't get more than the more you wanted. You just didn't get more. You got an increase, but you just didn't get enough of an increase. And you're then on TV going, oh, well, we didn't get what we wanted. We got less. They cut the budget on us. They didn't cut the budget on you. If the mayor, Libby Schaff in this case, in 2021 proposed an extra $57 million, that's extra. And if the council in Oakland instead decided that you'll get only 59, excuse me, that you'll get only 39 million extra, that's still extra. 
What are you getting on camera complaining that, oh, the budget got cut? It didn't get cut. It's still a $39 million increase. But that doesn't get explained. That nuance, that little key piece of information doesn't get properly communicated to the average news TV viewer. And so the TV viewer nods her head going, yeah, oh yeah, oh my gosh, the budget got cut. And they're not going to do any more analysis. They're going to just listen to what the television tells them. The average person will. But that's the problem, you see. The way the media reports this. Budgets are everything. And a lot of these police departments are well overfunded. That's why I say, you know, President Biden, this notion, oh, we need to fund the police some more. No, you don't. It's what you do with the money. As James McCabe said in the earlier article I read out to you, it's how you deploy the the police, what you do with them. It's not that you've got a gazillion police. What matters is how you're deploying them, how you're utilizing them. How are you getting the best use out of police? See, people just think dumping some money on police and throwing out as many uniformed officers as you possibly can get your eyeballs on is enough. And that's going to somehow magically reduce crime. It's not. What is the structural systemic plan? That's what the issue is. And people don't like to think about those things. At least some people don't. So that's the issue, dear listener. These budgets for, you know, the average police department gets lots of money. And I get it. San Francisco's budget you know, it's, it's, a, it's a shortfall. I get that. But the police are still getting a lot. Oh, come on, man. The police always get a lot of money. They get lots of money. They may not get exactly the money they want, but they generally get increases. They generally do across the board, across this country. And this whole canard about we need to fund the police more. Ooh, And and Democratic presidents and Republican presidents have said this. Same with the governors of both parties. It's a joke. Oh, we need to spend more on police. And the police, and and without even addressing whether what you're spending it on goes to the right areas, what's, you know, whether or not the police are efficient, whether they're deployed properly, what their station is, what they're used for. I mean, damn, no one likes to think with any nuance. It's all this oversimplification, the simple Simonism of this kind of thing, of this subject. It requires more careful analysis than just throwing police out on the street and then thinking, oh, it's going to reduce crime. Because it's not going to reduce crime. It really won't. We have to spend, stop spending so much on police and stop this militarization of police. That's what we need to do. And we need to put a lot of that money that's being spent on police and wasted on police who commit crime, pulling black people over for no reason, killing black people. A lot of the money that funds these police need to be put in education, needs to be put in bettering communities. And that's how you start to look at getting rid of crime. It's not through putting loads of police on the street. It's actually through targeting the things that cause crime. Targeting poverty. You can eliminate poverty tomorrow morning if you want to in the United States, which is country on the freaking planet. 
You can do that tomorrow. But you know what? If you did that, you know what that would mean? It would mean that a lot of people, white and some black, would be out of a job tomorrow. Not solving the crime problem, my point being, not solving the crime problem in the United States means keeping the structure and systems of control and hierarchy and rich and poor in place. That's what that is. And if people were going to really solve the issues of crime, they would have to dismantle the system. That's what they'd have to do. And in fact, even less so than that, they would have to start spending more money on education, less on police, less on defense, more money on homing, putting homes for the out, giving homes to the unhoused or homeless. That's where this would come from. And more money on beautifying parks and, and, and bettering the education system and making the environment and the housing where people live better. And they don't want to do that. They want to keep their empire of building more prisons and banning more books. That is what is going on in this country. And they want to privatize prisons. Some of them already are. And they want to make money off of incarcerating black and brown people. That is a gazillion dollar industry. And that's what getting rid of crime would mean. Getting rid of that kind of money. And I don't see anyone in the power structure who is up for doing that. Developing the South Bay, shocking allegations rocking San Jose's police officers union. A union executive now in custody accused of running a drug dealing operation from within union offices. Today in the base, Chris Sanchez, live outside the police union headquarters this morning. What are investigators saying about this one, Chris? You know, Laura, they say that this is the executive director of the police officers union, the POA, as they call it, and that these charges date back years. And in one case, one person died from the drugs that she allegedly trafficked. This is 64-year-old Joanne Segovia here in her LinkedIn photo. She was the union's executive director for the last 20 years. Federal investigators say she used her office and the union email to traffic fentanyl clones out of the state for the last eight years. Federal prosecutors say that Joanne Segovia had 61 drug shipments mailed to her San Jose home from Hong Kong, Hungary, India, and Singapore. They say Segovia used her office here at the POA and the union's UPS account to distribute those substances. Retired San Jose police auditor Judge Ladoris Cordell says the POA needs to be transparent on this issue and fast before people wonder why this could happen for so long without anyone noticing. If the allegations are true, this woman was conducting some of her business right there at the uh, SJPOA's office. In fact, uh, if it's true, uh, she utilized one of the accounts. She utilized an email address for herself with sjpoa.com. Uh, so th there's, a, there's a problem here, collateral damage, embarrassment, but there's a little more. I think SJPOA needs to respond to the community and answer some questions. 
Uh, we've been asking some questions, and so far the POA issued a statement that reads in part, the POA has fully and completely cooperated with the federal authorities as they continue their investigation. No other individual at the POA is involved or had prior knowledge of the alleged acts. The POA immediately places civilian employee on leave, as is standard procedure, cut off all access to the POA. The board of directors is saddened and disappointed, and we have pledged to provide full support for the investigative authorities. Uh, Segovia faces charges that carry a maximum of 20 years in prison. However, in that federal complaint, there is one case in which the drugs that were shipped to Alabama resulted in an overdose death. We're asking questions about that this morning. We'll tell you what we know in our midday news at 11. In San Jose, Chris Sanchez, Today in the Bay. There you have it. This is a system. The head of the San Jose Police Union, the POA, the head of that union, the executive director of that union, allegedly running a drug operation inside the freaking office right there in San Jose, California. That's roughly an hour, almost an hour's drive south of San Francisco. I I mean, really? Seriously? Maybe a bit more than an hour south by car. Uh, I mean, you've got to be kidding me, right? I mean, I'm not surprised. Shocking allegations. Again, I go back to this, the way that, and that's a white female executive director of the San Jose POA, right? I'm not surprised, but the way that the news media responds, when again, as I said throughout this episode, when a white person is accused of doing something criminal, Oh, shocking, oh, shocking, like this doesn't happen when white people do it. But when a black person does it, it's not billed as shocking anything. It's, oh, today a black person did this. Oh, they don't use the word black, but you get what I'm saying. And they matter-of-factly report it. They don't talk about how shocking the allegations are. They just report it. Because it's expected of those black people over there, you see. So we're not shocked. There is nothing to be shocked about. There are no shocking allegations. The way that we get socialized, I'm telling you, if you think that that's not happening, you better think again. It's all the code. It's what's said, what's not said. It's the subliminal messaging. All the rest of it. And then the idea that this person, since I like to talk about the system, The idea that this person is doing this for eight years from her office using a San Jose police union account, using email with SG, excuse me, SJPOA.com, really? And no one else knows? Bullcrap. Bullcrap. The notion that she was doing this allegedly for eight years fentanyl that kills so many people in this country and you want to know how the fentanyl gets into neighborhoods we as black folk have been saying for years that the police put this stuff in our neighborhoods and now we continue to get further confirmation of that when you have an alleged situation here with this head of the police union in san jose 
getting shipments from all over the world coming into her office. And you tell me no one else sees this? No one else knows it? What, does she get all the FedEx and UPS packages? Does she pick them all up? Nobody realizes. No one in there. She's been the head of that POA forever. She's doing this allegedly eight years and no one else sees her in her own freaking office in the POA there in San Jose. San Jose, really? No one else sees that. Oh, okay. Oh, no one else had knowledge of it. Did you hear the statement in that broadcast, in that audio? Oh, no, the police, the, the uh, San Jose Police Union. Oh, no one, no one else had any knowledge of this. Bullcrap. You can't tell me that the uh, executive director of the police union there all of a sudden is the only one who knows she's omniscient. She's not. The, come on, man. You mean the treasurer didn't see anything funny with the books and the money? You mean the freaking accountants didn't? They all somehow had their eyes closed all day long? No one else picked up the packages from UPS that came to SJPOA but Joanne Segovia? Really? Come on, man. Come on, man. Come on now. Come on. You can't tell me that now. I don't have to be there to know it. Right? You can't tell me that that was only her. For that to be going on that long, people have to be enabling it. They surely have to be aiding and abetting it. You can't tell me that someone else doesn't know what's going on. You can't tell me that. I refuse to believe it. You're lying to me if you tell me that Joanne Segovia is the only person that knew what was going on for eight years. No one else knew in the police union. No one else. Police union, only, as I said earlier, only the most freaking powerful union in the country, in the United States. But you know, she's the only one that knows. <laughs> no, no one else knows it. Freaking shipments of fentanyl coming to her. Oh, no one sees anything awry with the packages. You know, no one sees it. What's this? <laughs> Come on, man. Again, I just keep saying this. People will, some of you out there in the world, not necessarily you, dear listener, some of you in the world would justify anything as long as somebody white is doing it. You you justify anything. And you would, as long as someone white's doing it. Shocking allegations, are they? I remember back in 1991, the CIA director, John Deutsch, This is under George H.W. Bush. The CIA director, John Deutsch, made a rare trip to South Central Los Angeles. The CIA almost never makes contact with the outside world in terms of going into a community to talk to people in a town hall meeting. That never happens. It's very rare. Very, very rare. So the actual CIA director doing it? Oh, God. And he did. He went to a town hall that was really understandably raucous and that's still on c-span i put it i should put that in the next newsletter the whole thing was on c-span and i I watched it back in night in the 1990s it was unreal black communities in south central la because it's no longer called that it's called south la now people were furious representative maxine waters auntie maxine was there too back in the day as Representative Maxine Waters, and she still is, she remains that now, thank goodness, right? And long may that continue, knock on wood. 
She was there at the meeting, all of them, and John Deutsch came in there, and the CIA director, the white man, is like, I must tell you that we've never, ever, ever dealt drugs in black communities. We've never put drugs in South Central Los Angeles. I'm here tonight to tell this community, to tell you that the CIA has not, will not, and never has dealt drugs or distributed drugs or put drugs in black neighborhoods in Los Angeles or anywhere else. That was what he was saying. Go, I have to, you have to watch the entire thing. I put this on social media a couple of weeks ago. And I'll put this on the newsletter. Please subscribe to it, politocrat.substack.com, I think it is. Let me make sure I get that right, because I can't even remember the uh, my name of my own blooming newsletter. I'm the one that put the freaking thing out. So there we go. <laughs> how do you not, Omar, how do you not know what your newsletter is? <laughs> oh, God. You must be in some real trouble, man. It's politocrat.substack.com. I was right the first time. Um, politocrat.substack.com. Seriously, you need to be reading. I'll have this newsletter up, um, I think, today or tomorrow. I'll put that video in there. And John Deutsch, it was incredible. You'd never seen... And this is off the back of a load of news articles being written in the San Jose... Here we go again. That that name, San Jose, Mercury News by Gary Webb, a journalist and investigative journalist who wrote and detailed all of these instances of the police, especially the CIA, though, um, putting drugs in black neighborhoods in South Central. He provided all this documentation, this reporting and the LAPD's role in this, I think he did, if I'm not mistaken. And the CIA had to see him in a neighborhood talking like this. It was incredible. But the thing is, I think, you know, I don't want to, I don't think he's still alive. I'm not sure if he is or not, John Deutsch. He might be. I don't want to get that wrong. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that for a CIA director to come to the neighborhood and apologize and say, no, we didn't do this. I want to assure you this never happened. I'm sorry for the misunderstanding. Da, 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 da. It's incredible. And the residents were not hearing it, by the way. They were furious. And I totally am with the residents of South Central LA, now South LA, because black communities all across this country have been the dumping ground for guns, the dumping ground for drugs. We all know this. Black folk don't have weapons manufacturing plants in their neighborhoods. Black people don't have drug manufacturing plants in their neighborhoods. They have plants as in police planting drugs in their neighborhoods, as in drug couriers planting drugs in their neighborhood, as in undercover cops planting drugs in their neighborhoods, the same undercover cops or uniformed cops who try to freaking plant drugs on you when they stop you. Oh, I'm throwing a bag of uh, whatever in your car. I'm now going to bust you for possession. That's what happens to us in the United States and elsewhere across this world. We're driving our vehicle. The police find nothing. And while they're in the back of your trunk, they're freaking planting some stuff in the back of your trunk. And then they arrest you. Hey, what's this? And they probably are giving you the freaking drug to just confiscate it from someone else. Remember I talked earlier about the money that was being confiscated, stolen from black people in South Carolina. That article I read, 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 read yeah, that article I read from in the USA Today. I mean, this is what the police do. 
It's not about, I'm not bad talking anything. I'm telling you what the police do. They plant stuff on black folk. They plant stuff on brown folk and then turn around and go, what's this? You're under arrest for possession of uh, an unlawful substance, a narcotic. Oh my God, they do this all the time, all the time. When Walter Scott was killed in South Carolina, or was it North Carolina, a few years ago, shot in the back. Remember, I see a theme, a pattern here. Shot in the back, Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta by the Wendy's car park. And shot in the back, Walter Scott by a freaking cop. By the way, they had to try that cop twice before they convicted his ass. But I see a pattern here. And by the way, when Walter Scott was shot six times in the back as he ran away, caught on video, that cop planted a gun and some drugs on him. It's what these police do. It's what they do, mate. It's what they do. It's what they do. You can't tell me. You can't tell me that Joanne Segovia was working alone on this. For that operation to last eight years, there's no way she was operating alone in that police union. No way. No friggin' way. She is not an island unto herself. No man or woman, no person is an island, right? She had to have help, assistance. If it were a man, I'd say the same thing. He would have had to have help assistance you can't operate eight years allegedly eight freaking years out of your own office in the poa a freaking high-ass profile place the police union of san jose is the most uh popular city in the entire state of california san jose except for los angeles come on man it's like the second most popular city in the entire state LA is the largest, the most populous, right? And you're telling me the second most populated city in the friggin' state of California, oh, somehow there isn't someone else in that police union that knows what Joanne Segovia did or allegedly is doing? Come on, man. Come on, man. You have to be out of your mind. Out of your friggin' mind. And it's just a joke. They're rushing to cover their asses you heard the audio. Oh, no, no one else had any knowledge of this. It was just one person acting alone. No one else knew. <laughs> That's what they do. They cover their asses quicker than toilet paper, mate. They do. They will cover their ass quicker than toilet paper when it comes to any notion of wrongdoing, any specter of wrongdoing. Oh, no, no, he didn't do it. He didn't do anything. <laughs> I'm serious. I, this is just a joke to me. It's not It's not funny, though. It's very damn serious. And so I, I say to you, dear listener, that this is a system and this is why it ain't a good idea to be bringing in all these extra police. Because, again, if you're hiring police who are doing the wrong thing, you're not going to be safer and crime is not going to go down. It will go up. It will go up. Make no mistake about it. We need a different system altogether of policing. We need something different, dear listener. I think you would agree with that. What do you think the function of police is in the United States? 
I've given you my answer. What's yours? And by the way, voting counts, and especially on the local level. This is where the change really comes, from the local level. Go and ask Representatives Justin Jones and Justin Pearson about that. Their communities that they are the spokespersons for, the leaders of, the constituencies they represent, would certainly agree. They are local. Those counties are local. All politics is local. And again, we need to vote in every kind of election, local, state, federal, and every election that comes that we can vote in. We've got to vote. And you can get rid of some of this garbage. If you believe in reform, vote these folks out. Even if you believe in systemic change and getting rid of the system as I do, I'll be voting these people out locally. And make sure you do some research on them. Because I'm telling you, this is going to be the difference between a more efficiently run area police. And listen, I'm, I'm awful, quite frankly, dealing with completely changing policing altogether and not have police in their present form. That's, I'm all for that. But whatever you're for, make sure you get involved. Make sure you do. You can't afford not to. The time is now. Not next year, but right now. Follow yours truly on Twitter at the popcorn R E E L and also on Spoutable S P O U T I B L E dot com forward slash popcorn R E E L. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. The excuse me, it's youtube.com forward slash at sign the politocrat POD. I've already told you about the online store, the dash politocrat.myshopify.com. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. The scandal involving the Antioch Police Department is widening. KCBS's Chris Ancarlo reports live the release of racist text messages sent by officers is prompting calls for cases to be re-examined. Chris? Yeah, Holly, those messages were released by the Contra Costa District Attorney's Office last night. They took up about 20 pages peppered with racial slurs and admissions of plotting to destroy evidence. The Public Defender's Office is asking the DA to immediately cease filing cases brought by the Antioch Police Department and to dismiss pending cases and review prior cases involving these officers. These text messages show a force deeply riddled with corruption, systemic racism, misogyny, homophobia, civil rights violations, police brutality, just to name um, a, a few of the issues that are, are ripe within the text messages. Contra Costa County Chief Public Defender Ellen McDonald says the uh, messages also show that the racism reaches into all ranks of the department. Cal State East Bay Criminal Justice Professor Lisa Hill says the community is going to struggle getting past the optics on this case. I think that this case and many of the other cases is calling for just more and more transparency. Hill says it's important to know whether prosecutors were aware of the culture within the Antioch Police Department. Reporting live in Martinez, Chris Ancarlo, KCBS. Hey, Chris, I guess the uh, DA's office released the redacted investigative report last night. You read it. I looked it over. I'm surprised that 
this went on undetected for so long, like you said, and, and for so many years. Yeah, it's truly stunning. And again, you know, this has echoes of other police scandals that we've seen in the East Bay. Certainly the uh, the writers come to mind. I'm just going to pull this up real quick uh, that you bring it up. I have this one screenshot of the report that really stuck out to me. And it was a number of officers talking about a story that had been published uh, specifically citing Oakland Police Department uh, officers who had to turn over their city on phones because of an investigation having to do with uh, sexism and racism. And there was response to that was not, oh, you know, this is good. It was, um, okay, so how do we get rid of our phones? Right, Can I right. put my phone in the microwave? Can I, you know, how do I get rid of my iCloud evidence? So they knew what they were doing according to the documents that were released by the DA's office last night, which, again, reaches back into all of these criminal prosecutions that any of them have their fingerprints on. Do we have any idea how many cases that could add up to be? Yeah, it's a, it's a lot. I mean, it's a, there's no shortage of it. I don't have the exact number for you. I literally just talked with uh, Ellen McDonald with the public defender's office about 15 minutes ago. I've got to go back through and listen to that audio, but she gave me a pretty big number. And um, that is a discussion that I, she said that she was just about to send another letter down to Diane Becton, Diana Becton's office, the uh, Contra Costa County DA here this afternoon. So I'm sure that we'll get a better idea of just how many cases and how much more widely this will uh, this will spread. Thanks very much. That's Chris and Carlo in Martinez. This is bound up and a lot of those cases. And now, a statement made last week by Antioch Mayor Lamar Thorpe. I want to thank everyone for joining me here today. And I also want to thank everyone and give my sincere gratitude to folks who have reached out and expressed condolences uh, as my father passed away uh, last Saturday. Uh, my siblings and I uh, are very appreciative and very thankful for your prayers and thoughts uh, during what, for anybody, would be a difficult situation to navigate. Um, but I am here today to read a short statement. Uh, on Friday afternoon, Contra Costa Superior Court Judge Claire Mayer released the names of 17 Antioch police officers who allegedly were just unafraid to use racist language. There are no words to express my profound disappointment given that one of the officers serves as president of the Antioch Police Union. While Antioch has worked hard to become one of the Bay Area's most racially diverse cities, this will undoubtedly leave an embarrassing stain on our community. The culture at the Antioch Police Department is a problem and has long been a huge legal and financial liability for the city, which is on full display today. The culture of the department requires further exploration, including how the hell all of this alleged misconduct could go on for so long without anyone on our command staff noticing, from lieutenant on up to chief. Therefore, I'm calling for an independent audit of the internal affairs process, specifically looking at all complaints within the last six to eight years, from the nature of complaints to their disposition. I'm also seriously concerned about complaints that have not been investigated and are now outside of the statute of limitations. I want a complete review of that as well. Moreover, we need a complete independent audit of our hiring and promotions process practices so that the council can implement measures to better root out individuals with certain biases. This idea is part of my original police reform package that I presented to council in 2020, but has yet to be examined. Lastly, our police reform efforts are missing the forest for the trees because this fundamentally is about culture. 
I agree with Vice Mayor Tamisha Torres Walker and City Manager Forrest Ebbs on conducting some kind of police equity audit of the Antioch Police Department to measure bias in our enforcement efforts and to ultimately pursue measures that help eliminate racist policies, practices, and behaviors. We will hold anyone accountable that has allowed this culture to continue, uh, irrespective of how long you've been here with the department, whether it's been a year or 20 years, and regardless of your rank. I just want to remind the public, I really want people to understand that in my first 30 days in office, I had to deal with two in-custody deaths and the fallout as a result of that. In less than a year, a failed recall effort fueled by the idea of protecting the police department. Then in year two, I was hauled into the DA's office to be briefed about a very serious FBI investigation of the Antioch Police Department. And now on year three, we're dealing with alleged racism. The culture of acceptance is wrong. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. The fact of the matter that our, the fact of the matter is that our goal of a strong police department will not be materialized until every city resident, regardless of race and socioeconomic background, can feel they have a relationship and a trusting relationship with our police officers. If you're a supporter of law enforcement, you should support these reforms as they help separate officers who are committed to the badge and have played by the rules and those who have no business being police officers to begin with. I want to thank the men and women women of law enforcement who continue to hold themselves to high standards, as I know that this time is a difficult time for you. But I also ask for patience and understanding as the leaders of this city work to navigate these challenging situations. And I ask for the same patience and understanding for my residents. I will do my best. I will do my best to ensure that we put out as much timely information as we can and that this council and myself can make the appropriate decisions to steward our police department in the right direction. Thank you very much.